Welcome to the Not All Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 481. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, I'm so pleased to be joined today by author Nathan Rabb. Nathan Rabb, the preeminent American dealer in rare documents, is contacted by at least 20 people every day looking to sell historical documents and artifacts. He constantly combs through other dealers' catalogs and examines lots offered by the top auction houses. Forgeries are common, and spotting them is an art in and of itself. But Nathan Rabb's work transcends the documents and pieces of paper and gets at the heart of what's been written and by whom. It's important work, and it's the hunt for history. For me, you know, what, what our work boils down to is transcending the piece of paper on which these letters, these documents are written and getting to the heart of the person who wrote, who wrote them. And so that means, I mean, what's, what's, a, what's a historical document but a piece of paper or a piece of animal skin? So, the, you know, what I, what I write at the end of the book, uh, which, is, which kind of, you know, it's what drives uh, the pursuit, not only by us, but, the, but by people and institutions that collect these documents. And, and I'll read here. I've come to realize that the work I do is not merely a meaningful adventure and is not simply about finding one gem here or there. It's much more than that. It is important. The hunt for history is a journey of discovery, a search for further meaning. Jefferson's pen writes the story of our lives. Lincoln's wisdom lights our own path. Churchill's courage gives us strength. Einstein's vision compels us to aspire. We live their stories in our lives. I am hunting for history, but I am also hunting for myself. And there is so much left to discover. That, of course, is our guest today, Nathan Rabb, reading from his excellent new book, The Hunt for History. We'll be talking to Nathan Rabb about much more, including what his business is like day to day. The fascinating story of how he learned to tell the difference between real and forged artifacts and of many amazing finds that were nearly lost to the ages. Whether it's the first report of Napoleon's death or an unpublished letter penned by Albert Einstein to a curious soldier or the letter that Winston Churchill wrote, every document and artifact he uncovers comes with a spell-binding history. You're going to love this interview. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates author interview series via internet phone, author Nathan Rabb. Nathan Rabb, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today. I uh, am excited to talk to you. Of course, we're going to talk about uh, your book, The Hunt for History. Uh, We're also going to talk about your Smithsonian Associates presentation. And I wonder if we could start right there and maybe tell us a little bit about your upcoming presentation. And and in particular, Zoom is such a part of our lives. Smithsonian is using it to great great extent right now. And uh, I I think it's a wonderful component. It adds so much. So tell us how you're going to use Zoom to maybe engage our audience with your presentation. Yeah, I think it's tempting to uh, miss the in-person interaction, but I I sort of see it differently. The Zoom presentation using a PowerPoint, which will come directly to your computer, allows me to show these documents, these artifacts, to you up close right where you are in a much higher resolution, uh, much more interactive way than you would get sitting in a lecture hall where you know you might be in the back, or you might be far away, and you might not see exactly what I'm pointing at. 
it's much more of a person-to-person uh, presentation. Whereas, you know, there's not sort of the casual back and forth. You, you can really dive into the history, I think, a lot more tangibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's true, too. And, and I think that's why this will be a very exciting presentation. Just the, just the historical documents element of it will be really fascinating to kind of see up close. And, and I think your business is fascinating, too. And I, I'd like you to tell us maybe, and this is a bit unusual for me to ask this kind of a question, but maybe give us a, a glimpse into the day-to-day operations of a rare documents dealer what's the business of historical documents like well every day is very different so i never know what my day is going to look like and that can come in one of two ways so every single day people from all over the world in every continent email us call us with something that they have and that could be a new discovery it could be something that they've inherited. It could be something they've had and collected themselves. And they want to know, is this authentic? Is it valuable? Do you want it? What will you pay for it? This involves for us every day, sifting through 20 to 30 such communications. And one never knows when those are going to come in. I mean, they've, you know, people have been home recently a lot more, and so we, we've been sort of flooded with these kinds of inquiries. But it's very, it's very exciting, because what that means is every email that you open, every image that you look at, is a potential new discovery, and oftentimes that happens. It's not un- uncommon for us to open something up and say, oh, wow, this is a document signed by Thomas Edison from when he was in his mid-20s that no one's ever seen or even knew existed. So, you know, a lot of it is sifting. And that may sound... Um, you know, a casual and even easy, but think of what that sifting involves. It involves being able to sort of sift out the things that we don't handle. You know, we're not likely to carry a Michael Jordan signed basketball or a Britney Spears signed photograph. Um, finding the things that potentially interest us and then putting that through further through a sifter, is it authentic? And that itself is a process which uh, is uh, it can be complicated and involves a great deal of experience. It's not something that they teach you at, uh, at most schools. You don't get a degree in this particular skill. It's, it's an apprenticeship, so you learn it over time. And then we have to decide, okay, well, it's authentic. We like it. We want it. What's it worth? What are we willing to pay for it? Um, and then, of course, on the other side, people calling to buy things. You know, A lot of our, our customers are, are very interesting people. Some of them are major institutions. Uh, some of them are prominent, uh, many less so. And they have their own interesting stories and their own interests and their own desire to say, okay, well, I want something signed by Winston Churchill. Well, why do I like Winston Churchill? What, what's the sort of, what's what's my impetus to own something that he touched and he signed? It's impressive that you're so busy. And, and I think that's, that's fascinating. Maybe these times are just lending themselves to a, a, a large amount of these kinds of of documents and things that that appear on your doorstep, and so is this a potential career path for 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 young people or for for our audience? Yes, I think that um, you know the challenges to being a, a historical document dealer uh, now. So my dad started this business when I was in, gosh, sixth grade. Uh, he and I work together every day, so you know, talking about what my day looks like, it involves frequent phone calls with my father or my wife, who's, who's my partner in this business. Um, he started this uh, business during 
a period where the material wasn't quite as expensive as it is now, and there was more competition. There is there are very few historical document dealers today, and I'm tempted to think that that, that is a function of the amount of money that's required. The barrier to entry here is cash. Um, to to you know, we have an inventory that's six seven hundred pieces uh, at any given moment, and so you know, what is the cash outlay required to have an inventory of say? you know, eight Washington documents, eight Lincoln documents, and take that across the board. Because mm-hmm. you're acquiring it first and then determining its uh, its validity and then perhaps marketing it beyond. Yes, I think the misconception is that we represent people. And the reality is that everything on our website, uh, everything that we sell, we also own. And that is that is a reflection of our belief in the document. We buy purely on spec. And so we're not, um, you know, the, the representation model, which of course is most prominent with auctions like Christie's and Sotheby's, which I'm sure people are quite familiar with, is, you know, they take, they, they represent the sale and then they take a percentage. That's not what we do. We, we go out and we just buy things. Paul, well, can I go back and, and, and I'd like to go back and elaborate on, on that point. Because, you know, we often lament that the ability to authenticate and assess, the, assess these documents is a dying skill. Um, and so is there a space for young people to want to really learn this and get into it and, you know, develop a, you know, people who are passionate about history and want to touch it and, and, you know, have that aspect of sleuthing and, and searching Yes, there's there's space for that, and and there are very few people who know how to do it properly, and so and there is a need for it. And it's an apprenticeship that you uh, you identify you you did this for, with your father, and um, and so that's probably the path. That's probably the path to entry, along with a, a wallet. Yeah, I mean, you can learn. You really have to learn through experience, and so wherever you find that, whether it's in the rare book room at at a Christie's or a Sotheby's or working for uh, a firm like ours, there's no substitute for repetition. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink, which I, I reference all the time. The Somebody who's really, you know, I think the sort of the smoke and mirrors of this world uh, with the everyday things. I mean, there are certainly examples where this is appropriate, but the smoke and mirrors of this world is like the white gloves and, you know, the advanced technological equipment re- required for authenticating these things. And there is a place for the latter in some cases. White gloves are not something that people want to use because that you can more easily damage the document. But someone who's really knowledgeable about this has seen so many Abraham Lincoln letters that when something comes up that looks off, they just feel it. I can't express the. It's like a sixth sense. You just, you, it feels off. And we use that word feel all the time. Like, you know, if my dad and I are looking at something that ought to be right. Like, so for instance, William Henry Harrison served for, you know, a very short period of time. He's famous for dying very uh, early into into the first year of his administration. And so things signed by Harrison are very uncommon when they're signed as president. And they tend to go for tens of thousands of dollars. We were recently quoted a document. We made uh, an offer and went to buy it. And then when it arrived, I called my dad and I said, this feels off. There's something wrong with this piece. And the more we looked into it, the more the ink, like, it wasn't a forgery, it was a copy, but it ended up being, we ended up buying it as an example of a copy, but, you know, it's not a, it's not signed by Harrison, but the idea that something can feel off and you just kind of 
feel it in your bones is something that you can't get through instruction. You have to just, it has to be repetition. And so it was years before I felt comfortable authenticating things on my own uh, without my, my father present. How common is that? Are you seeing out of the 20 or 20 plus calls and, and outreach that you're getting every single day on, on uh, this work, are you seeing more forgeries or more fakes or more real items? What's kind of the proportion? Uh, I would say, let's say that for the sake of conversation, we get 30 outreaches a day. I would say 27 of them are things that, or 26 of them are things that we just don't want. It's not for us. And that could be because it's minor. It could be because it's not in the right field. Um, Maybe one of them is some kind of copy or forgery. Uh, Maybe two of them are, and maybe one of them is something that we want to pursue. So the percentage that makes it through the filter is very small. And, you know, we can go one or two weeks without buying anything and then buy an archive of hundreds of documents the following week. It's, 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 there's no consistency. And, um, you know, there's some fun in that. You never know what's mm-hmm. going to come your way. We are with Nathan Rabb. Nathan Rabb will be at the Smithsonian Associates Program coming up October 8th. Title of Nathan Rabb's presentation is An Expert's Hunt for History. Nathan Rabb is the author of the new book, The Hunt for History. It's excellent. I've had it for a couple of months. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Nathan Rabb. It, it is really a fun book. So tell us one of the biggest finds. I In the book, of course, which again is, is wonderful, I'm just going to highly recommend this again to our audience. The book is entitled The Hunt for History by Nathan Rabb. I so enjoyed the historical elements of the book, and I know our audience will too, but the secret recordings on board JFK's um, Air Force One, I thought were fascinating. But but what what what's this? Tell us the story, maybe of your biggest find. Well, somebody asked me this the other day. I I, I think my biggest find is is the find that I'm most excited about most recently. <laughs> it's it's it. You know, you get so many of these documents, and and. Um, that and you get so into them, so excited about researching them that the most recent one always seems like the most exciting. You know, my, the things that I've enjoyed the most are not necessarily the most expensive. They're the things that I'm shocked survived. So when Winston Churchill was a young man, I mean, because these documents have their own journeys. I mean, they don't survive by accident. They survive because somebody saved them. And that's how that's how our history is written. It's written by things that people saved. Um or by people who were part of that history. And so when Winston Churchill was a young man, he fought in the Boer War in South Africa. He was a correspondent, I should say, uh, during the Boer War for a British publication in South Africa. The train he was on was derailed, um, and he was taken as a prisoner. He was treated well by his Dutch captor, and so wrote a small note and by small, I mean slightly larger than a business card, saying, this man has treated me well. I hope you'll do the same if, if you capture him. And it's written to some prospective uh, English captor. That small note written in pencil in South Africa was kept by the man in his pocket. He never had a chance to use it because he was killed. His family kept that note for generations and then gave it to an institution, a small museum, a tiny little museum down in rural South Africa, and eventually sold it to them. That small institution decided 
private institution decided to sell it to us. The woman lived 600 miles from, well, 600, hundreds, we'll say hundreds for pure accuracy's sake, hundreds of miles from the nearest FedEx location. She got in her car, drove it, sent it to us. It's now in a private collection in uh, Idaho. And so think about the journey of that document. The fact that that tiny little thing survived was found on the body of a, written by Churchill, found on the body of a, a, of a soldier, went from South Africa to Philadelphia to Idaho. I mean, the very survival of such an important piece of early uh, history in the life of Churchill is just fascinates me. Yes, that is a fascinating story. And so it was signed by Churchill. It, it was almost he had memorialized it in that sense. So you had something to go on to identify the document being from him. Yeah, well, not only was it signed by Churchill, he wrote about it and illustrated it in a book that he subsequently wrote. I guess he didn't illustrate it. He wrote about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the incident and the writing of the note are are are, uh, are uh, referenced by Churchill himself. So you almost have duplicate records of the artifact itself. You have him writing about it and then writing it. Yeah, and that helps authenticate something. You know, when you have that kind of paper trail and the document was where, you know, you'd want it to be, as in South Africa. Uh, you know, the whole thing, uh, the whole story made made complete sense. And that's part of how we authenticate something. You, you know, you, you have, these documents don't exist in a vacuum. They have context to them. Um, you know, so like, let's imagine that I'm buying a collection of documents and nine out of 10 of them are forgeries and the 10th, I'm just not sure about. It's time to walk away from that collection. That's called a polluted stream. So, you know, you, you use the, the context in which these documents are found are important. But finding somebody who bought it from a family member in South Africa and then finding that it matches the description that Churchill himself gave and the piece was later published. Um, you know, that's part of the authentication process. And so it's not simply looking at a thing, looking at it under a microscope, holding it up to the light. I mean, of course, there can be, there. there's a place for that, a time and place for that. But the best determination, the best, um, the, the, the most important factor to me has historically been the context of the thing. Fascinating. Have you ever made any mistakes in identifying some of these documents? Anything that uh, you thought was something that turned out it, it wasn't? And then, and then, what does that lead to? Do you have to, if you buy it, you, the sale's final, and can you go back to the seller? How does that all work? No, we don't do that. I mean, yeah, we've made a uh, handful of mistakes. I mean, um, but you can't. I mean, I guess if we were to buy it at a public auction, then yes, we or or from a colleague, we could go back and say. Uh, you know, this isn't what you said it was and, and get our money back. But if once you, once you buy something from, you know, a private person going back and, and, you know, sort of subsequently litigating that is a complex and, and not a great process. So no, I mean, our mistakes have luckily been such that they've not, um, you know, they've not been high ticket mistakes. Uh, but you know, you learn, uh, you, you, you take the gut punch you eat crow, so to speak, and uh, you move on. And you know the 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 
the great forgers, the people who are doing the great forgeries are, are really long since gone. You know, the early, the late 19th century, early 20th century, you get the likes of, you know, Robert Spring and Joseph Cozy and Charles Weisberg. And these guys were accomplished forgers. And I think that's in part because, you know, during this period, you were taught penmanship. And so they understood how to write. And they applied that to, and they had access to the material uh, in a lot higher quantity than we do today. So the forgers today tend to be sloppy. And and, uh, and um, the thing that you worry the most about now, and, and you know, the one mistake that I can think of that we've made is buying something, buying a, a glossy signed photograph. And the reason that's the case, that's signed. And that could be, you know, also a sepia photograph. And the reason is that these that pen gives its own shine to it. The photograph mimics that shine and can trick the eye. Um, now, having made this mistake, we won't make it again, but we bought a signed photograph of Charles Lindbergh, which looked to be authentic. Um, as we were doing our research, we came to realize that it was a copy high-resolution reproduction on sh on the appropriate paper that was made at the time and given out to people. And uh, that was our mistake. So, you know, we, we pocketed it, kept it as, as, a, as an example uh, how not to make that mistake. But that's what I sort of think about the most these days are high-resolution photographic copies. Now, you can't really do that with paper but you can with photographs. What a pleasure it's been to talk with you. I, I could talk to you for a long time, Nathan Rabb, but we'll kind of end it here because we gotta we got to uh, leave plenty for the presentation coming up on October 8th. We're going to put links up to where you can find out more information about Nathan Rabb and, of course, his presentation coming up at Smithsonian Associates titled An Expert's Hunt for History. The book is The Hunt for History. We're going to put links there. Just fascinating. Really some great storytelling and um, some wonderful examples about authenticity and uh, how we can really uh, enjoy the past uh, in, in the present. But Nathan Rabb, thank you for your time today. You've been so generous. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Nathan Rabb, who will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates October 8th via Zoom. Details are available on our website or at Smithsonian Associates. Nathan Rabb's new book, The Hunt for History, is available for sale. Thanks, too, to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all their help and assistance with the show. And my thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Stay safe, everyone, and practice smart social distancing. And remember to talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.